the Second World War, the German government, they sponsored a program and an effort to try and unify Protestant churches uh, in support of the Nazi party. This is their project. Afterwards, some churches and some pastors, they got suspicious of this move, and they were disappointed with the way that Protestants were so quickly selling their soul to the German state. They got suspicious of the fact that Christians were so quickly uh, perhaps idolizing the nation state and confusing the rule of the Fuhrer with the sovereignty of God. And this coalition of pastors and churches in the German Lutheran Protestant churches, they formed a coalition called the Confessing Churches, led by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You might have heard his name before. And these guys protested, uh, and they uh, gave safe housing to the disadvantaged during the Second World War. They underwent severe persecution, and most importantly, at a critical time in history, they pastored people through some of the darkest days that we know, the confessing churches. The reason I think I'm starting to enjoy history a bit more is because you kind of start to see the way that God, through his people, interacts with the way that the world is changing again and again and again. And he keeps calling women and men and pastors and disciples to be his hands and his feet, his shepherds, his leaders, his preachers, his teachers, to intersect the world with where it's at. One lady in those churches was a pastor, and her name was Ilsa Fredericksdorf. I'm definitely not pronouncing her name right. We don't know much about her, but she was a pastor at the time. She was in the Confessing Churches. Uh, and there's an excerpt from a book written about the New Testament in German uh, after the Second World War that in the preface, this is how detached this is, in the preface talks about her story. And I want to read you a quote from this preface uh, because it, t- it tells us of the work that she did, the pastoring that she did and the way that she allowed herself to be used by God to pass the people in one of the darkest moments in history. It says this, Ilse Fredericksdorf was a young girl belonging to the Confessing Church. Through our congregation, she came to take up theological study. She studied in our theological college and in Basel with Karl Barth. During the war, she remained in congregations northeast of Berlin, in that region where the last battle prior to Berlin was waged. Get this, she was so much in demand for her pastoral skills that the major of the troop repeatedly requested her aid among the troops. Later, she led displaced congregations with the word of God, went back to the hunger zone as much as possible, and after she had buried hundreds of thousands who perished, succumbed herself to starvation. Ilsa was a female pastor, a leader in the confessional church, and someone whose life and ministry soared to the furthering of God's kingdom at a moment in history where things looked bleak. Today, we're looking at the question of women in leadership. And more particularly, we're looking at the question of women in church leadership. Because that's the question we all ask. We're looking at the question of women in leadership. And I just want to acknowledge that even as I say those words, that there's going to be a diversity of reaction in front of me based on the position you have, the experience that you've got, the background that you're coming in with, and I just want to name some things before we jump into what I hope will be a helpful and fruitful time for us all this morning. Maybe you hear me say women in leadership and women in church leadership and you get nervous. You get nervous because you're scared that actually you, you believe in women in leadership in particular, but that the guy at the front's going to do a bad job at trying to persuade people to hold it. 
Maybe you're nervous on the other end of the spectrum and you actually don't hold to the position that this church subscribes to uh, and you're nervous that I'm going to sell people short with a, a bad presentation of the opposing view uh, and I won't do justice to the plethora of spectrum of debate. Maybe you're nervous from that end of the spectrum. Maybe you're not nervous, maybe you're excited. For you, you care about this topic way too much and I would just say, me too. Uh, Maybe you're excited here this morning. You've been looking forward to the day that this gets taught on uh, and that we actually open up a space in which we can contemplate what the scriptures invite us into. But maybe you're not excited, you're not nervous, you're dumbfounded. I don't know if you've come here this morning, you might not be a Christian. You might come with no religious background and you'd be sitting there thinking, women in leadership? Does that really need to be talked about? I mean, we've had a female prime minister who gave a a glaring address, you know, in the House of Parliament in 2012. We've definitely moved past the stage where we need to think about this topic, let alone talk about it in the church. Maybe you're dumbfounded by this conversation. But maybe you're here this morning and you're angry and you're upset and you're hurt. Maybe you're a woman yourself and you've experienced being silenced, gone unrecognized and had your gifts and leadership pushed down in the church. Maybe you're excited, maybe you're nervous, whatever your story, I actually think that this is not a reason to shy away from this kind of conversations. It's a reason to lean in. This topic is emotional, it's complex, and it's dense, especially when I'm going to preach on it. And no one's jealous to be in my shoes this morning. It needs to be addressed because women in church leadership is not something on which the church agrees. It's something with which Christians, faithful to the scriptures, trying to walk forward with integrity of mind, actually disagree about. It's debated. And if you were to put yourself into this debate, you'd, you'd hear terms flown around, flung around like complementarianism, egalitarianism, feminism, patriarchy. You'll even get further back from that and you'll start hearing people call each other liberals and conservatives. And you'll get further back from that and you'll hear people start talking about mutuality and hierarchy and all these kinds of terms. And I kind of want to sideline those terms. I want to flag them so you know that they're there and you can take this conversation further yourself. But I want to sideline those terms and sort of articulate the way in which people would approach this question in very basic ways. Some people think that women can't be in any form of pastoral leadership. Other people think that women can can be in pastoral leadership so long as it's not the role of senior pastor or ordained ministry. Other people think that God calls and equips men and women equally into pastoral leadership. So there should be no office or role in the church that men or women gifted by God can't Phil, and here's why this is interesting. It's interesting because you hear a story like that of Ilse Fredericksdorf, and you can have one of three reactions. One reaction is to say that her ministry is an example of disobedience because they think that God has reserved pastoral leadership for men only. Other people think that someone like Ilse's story is an exception to the rule because she found herself in a circumstance of grave historical uniqueness. And so when there weren't men, women were freed up to do a role which is typically and traditionally reserved for men. Other people think of her ministry as actually an expression of that to which God invites the church and always has, because they think that the Bible encourages men and women in leadership, in pastoral ministry. I've actually held all three views in my life. A number of years ago, I was at Bible college, and I was asked to write a paper on this question. Should the church allow women 
to be pastors. I engage the scriptures, I talk to trusted friends, I talk to mentors, I read everything that I thought was necessary to come to an informed conclusion on this topic, and I answered no. It was more than five years ago. I specifically thought that God calls and equips men and women across the church at a whole plethora of levels, but pastoral leadership in an ordained sense is reserved for men. That's how I concluded back then. I thought I was doing my due diligence. Five years ago, though, I began to change my mind. Now, I don't think that women in pastoral leadership is an example of disobedience. I don't think it's an exception to the rule. I actually think it's the very expression of what God has for so long called the church to, and in the scriptures is always given a trajectory for. When I contemplated this role at New Life, this is what actually got me really excited about this church. Because as a church, we fundamentally believe that God calls both men and women to shepherd, oversee, lead, and teach in any office or role within the church. Or in other words, we don't think that there's any echelon of church life that's prohibited for women. We don't think that there is any type of ministry that the Holy Spirit keeps just for men. We don't believe that as a church. Church leadership, in other words, is, is actually qualified by those who are gifted by the Spirit, both women and men. And here's what I want to do today in less than 40 minutes. I want to walk through some things that I found helpful to change my mind. I want to funnel it through my story so that those in the room who are nervous about this and haven't contemplated this would just take a next step. And those who are for this and have come to this church for this very reason to celebrate the gifts and the calling of women would just get excited and feel commissioned. And so two quick points this morning. What were the things that changed my mind and helped me think through this fruitfully? One, the pull of biblical evidence. And two, a passage which I had to reread. So first, the pull of biblical evidence. Now, you need to know one thing. This, this week when I was preparing this sermon, the, the, the challenge I had was not what I um, included in this sermon. I wasn't, I wasn't scrounging around looking for material. Um, it was actually what I exclude from this kind of sermon. Because the weight of biblical evidence pulls towards women being freed up, celebrated, and gifted and commissioned to be in leadership in the church. For example, take all the women prophets in the Bible. There's a plethora of them. Let me name some of them for you. There's Miriam, who's Moses' older sister. There's Deborah, who leads Israel as a judge and a prophet. There's Huldah, who the great King Josiah consulted with, seeking God's will. There's Isaiah's wife. There's Anna in the New Testament, who prophesied about Jesus in the early chapters of Luke's gospel. And there's Philip's daughters, identified in Acts 21. And Paul even speaks of prophesying in 1 Corinthians 11, where he puts a bunch of cultural um, sort of uh, rules in that passage about um, the way to conduct yourself orally at church. But he actually mentions that, that, that women are prophesying, um, Paul the Apostle himself. Now, the thing about prophecy... The interesting thing about prophecy is that like a base level definition of prophecy is that it's declaring the word of the Lord. And some people want to say that sure, women can prophesy, but they can't lead and teach in the church. But here's the problem with that, and lead and teach with the Bible, so to speak. Here's the problem with that. If you agree with the base definition of what prophecy is, and you say that women can't use the Bible to preach and teach then you're actually saying that women can preach and teach the word of the Lord, but they just can't use the scriptures to do so. That's the irony of withholding women from using the Bible in the pulpit to preach and teach about 
Jesus. And as someone who loves the Bible, that just sounds a bit more sketchy. And so there's women who prophesy in the Bible, and that's the declaration of the Word of God. And God calls them to it. Moving on, take Paul's female co-laborers in gospel ministry. In Romans 16, Paul, he sends his final greetings to the churches in Rome. And in it, he commends a number of people. And if you were to read Romans 16, I encourage you, even as I'm speaking, feel free to grab it out. If you were to read Romans 16, one of the things that is striking is the fact that Paul lists twice as many male names as females, but he commends twice as many females as males. He lists twice as many male names as female names, but he commends twice as many females as males. And if you've ever, ever studied leadership, you'll know that what you celebrate for the people that are following you, you get more of. What you celebrate, you're actually calling up and out of the people that are following you. And so when Paul celebrates more women than men, he's not actually trying to find quotas. He's not trying to do anything like that. He's actually just saying that there's no reason we should exclude women from ministry. There's nothing that um, is in this passage that points that way. He celebrates women in ministry. And I want to pull out two names that Paul uses because they completely struck me when I first found out what their stories were. First, Paul makes mention of a female apostle. I don't know if you know that that existed. In verse 7, you'll see it on the screen behind me, or maybe you won't. It depends on how well my PowerPoint is. All right, next time. He says these words, greet Andronicus and Junior, my fellow Jews who've been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. Now, here's the cool thing. Junior, she's a woman. And in the 20th century, here's the crazy thing about this. A number of Bible translations sought to make the case that Junior wasn't a woman, that she was a man. Before the 20th century, this was a much less popular opinion to hold. But in the 20th century, moves, and I won't name where they came from, but moves within the church, across the global church, just couldn't comprehend the possibility that there'd be someone of such stature, such leadership, such calling and commission who'd find themselves a female commended by Paul. And so some people, and very few scholars still think this today, but some people will try and argue that Junior was a male apostle. But this claim goes against all the evidence we have from the early church and what the early church fathers thought of Junior in this passage and translations from before the modern period. I actually don't know any decent scholar who would translate Junior as a male. Most people think it is indeed a female. And here's what this means. It means that Paul not only permitted female church planters, evangelists, and leaders, he celebrated them. He didn't just permit them, he celebrated them. Second name, Paul gives the task of bearing the letter of the Romans to a female. And her name is Phoebe. You read in verse 1, he mentions her name. Now, this might not sound too radical, but you've got to think about the historical situation. Rome was a strategic place in the mind of Paul. He wanted to use it as his base for further missionary journeys to the West. It was a group made up of Jews and Gentiles. And he needs to help them understand not just the relationship between Jews and Gentiles given this new Jewish Messiah, but how they can too partner with what God is doing through the Messiah in his people for the world. It's a strategic location, but he can't go there himself. So who does he send? Who does Paul send? Timothy's a bit of a bro. He could send Timothy. He's got a little traction with Titus. He could send Titus. There could be any dude from Paul's portfolio of mates and those who are his mentoring. Who does he send? He sends Phoebe. And the radical thing about sending Phoebe 
is that you kind of got to put yourself in her shoes. Imagine you're there. First century letter. You're bringing it to a collection of house churches in Rome. They start reading it in public. The person who wrote the letter is no longer there. Who gets asked questions? Romans is a pretty confusing theological text. My question would be, can you explain this, please? What does the faithfulness of God mean? And who answers those questions? Now, it's a historical construction, but not in the absence of evidence. A lot of, work, a lot of scholars, Michael Bird, the guy who um, he studied at the college that I went to Bible college at, he's now at Ridley College in Melbourne, he makes this case in his book on women in ministry. He says it's a historical construction, but it's the one that's most probable to expect, given what we know about first century letter bearers. Who gets asked questions? Which means, think further than that, who's one of the first people to exegete the book of Romans? Phoebe. At least that's what's most historically probable. And here's what this means. Paul's got no issue with women teaching in churches. Not according to the scriptures. You've got women prophets. You've got Paul's uh, co-laborers. But then the kicker for me was the ministry of Jesus. And in the ministry of Jesus, there's a story that survives. One of the famous stories is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. And it's the story of Mary and Martha. This story is interesting because the way people zoom in on this story is they use this story to basically talk against the ruthless elimination of Harry and say, don't be a Martha, be a Mary. The story goes, Jesus is invited to dine with Mary and Martha. He walks in. Martha's in the kitchen, fulfilling a traditional role within that society. She's busy. Things are hectic. You seen Master Chef? She's busy. Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening. That's the phrase that Luke uses in verse 39, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Mary, Martha complains to Jesus and says, I'm busy. I need help, basically. And Jesus responds to Martha and says, you're worried about a lot of things. I can see that. Um, Mary's chosen the better thing, the one thing. Now, a lot of people will use this and they'll say, don't be a Martha in the kitchen. Just worship Jesus. Don't be busy in life. That's where the devil's playground is. Just worship Jesus. That's actually not what this passage is about. How do we know what this passage is about? Well, we need to understand the phrase Luke uses to describe what Mary did at the feet of Jesus. And the only other time that it gets used by Luke is in the, in the book of Acts. In chapter 22, I think it is. In the book of Acts, verse 20, chapter 22, verse 3, Paul is describing his ministry and his training as a Jewish disciple at the feet of Gamaliel. He says this in verse 3. He says, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. So Paul, he was a disciple of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a rabbi. And the purpose of discipleship is not that you'd learn what you need to learn in order to pass an exam. It's that you'd learn in such a way that it opens up the possibility that you yourself would become a rabbi. And a rabbi is an authoritative Jewish teacher. And so when Luke uses this language to describe what Mary did at the feet of Jesus... And Jesus commends Mary for what she does, echoing what is to come later in a roundabout way. What Paul did at the feet of Gamaliel. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm changing the metric of that which qualifies people to leadership in those who claim to follow me. It's not a discussion about busyness of Martha and worship of Mary. It's actually a discussion about who's qualified to be a disciple 
that opens up the possibility of them becoming a teacher. And Mary, in a unique way, is qualified. Let me put it this way. I only know of one Jewish rabbi who let women learn as disciples in the first century. Who do you think that was? It's Jesus. He opens up the possibility that women can grow and become authoritative teachers in those who claim to follow him, or put in another language, be teachers in the called out people that come after Jesus, or to put it in other language, to be leaders in the church, the ministry of Jesus. Dorothy says she's a 20th century English novelist and poet. She was meditating on how women were present through all seasons of Jesus' life and ministry, and she reflects on the way that Jesus ministered to women and accepted them. She said this. She said, perhaps it's no wonder that women were the first at the cradle and the last at the cross. They'd never known a man like this man. There'd never been such another. A prophet and a teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made art jokes about them, never treated them as the woman, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unself-conscious. So what does this mean? First point, let me say three things. One, look for women in the Bible. We are selectively blind with what we see in the scriptures sometimes. And I've learned the beauty of seeing the, the fingerprint of the female in the scriptures. And it's opened up my imagination, not just to the possibility, but to the celebration of women and the gifts that God gives them. Second, honor the women in our midst. Paul does. Let me just take a moment to do so. When my wife and I were contemplating the possibility of moving back to Brisbane and starting at New Life, we came here to uh, New Life HQ as a family. And uh, we sat in through the Genesis series. And it was week four. And in that week, someone opened up Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel. And I turned to my wife midway through what was, I imagine, supposed to be a 40-minute sermon, turned out a bit longer. But this person unpacked Genesis 4 in a way that I'd actually never experienced before. I'd always been really confused as to why God judges one of the brothers more harshly than the other. And this person alerted me to the fact through herself digging into um, Jewish tradition about this text, alerted me to the fact that God doesn't hold Cain um, in contrast to Abel or Abel in contrast to Cain. God holds Cain in contrast to the previous Cain. And he holds Abel in contrast to the previous Abel, and it blew my mind, and it illuminated the text, and it helped me worship Jesus. And that person was Anna Kustin. She's on staff here at New Life. She's a brilliant pastor. Every second thing that comes out of her mouth is a quote from Eugene Peterson, and it blesses me. Another person is Lauren Andrus. She's been a volunteer across the New Life family of churches for a while. She's now on staff in Brisbane. The other week, she preached a sermon, and it literally blew the roof off the house of our church. It was a becoming Sunday. She got up and she talked about the cost of discipleship. She quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer, where Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And she encouraged our church to do the same. And the response that night was tender and it was beautiful. And it's probably one of the best responses. And I worship God for it. We need to honor the women in our midst. And lastly, we need to pray for the future of our church. Here's the question I want to ask. Could it be that the next church planner we have is a female? Are you praying for that? That is good news. God wants to call and equip women 
not so they would have a role just so we can tick the box, but actually so that the mission of God would propel forward in the place that we find ourselves. So first, the weight of biblical evidence, and second, a passage which I had to reread. Here's the thing. Most people will go with me sort of three quarters of the way of what I'm saying so far. They'll say, yeah, I think Paul equips women. Yeah, I think he calls them to different leadership roles. But they'll still want to reserve, you know, senior leadership to the church, to men. And that's because on two occasions, the Apostle Paul seems to explicitly prohibit women from speaking and leading in the church. And the two passages of this, let's just be upfront about it. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 to 38, and 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 to 15. I don't have time to deal with both of these passages, so I'm going to choose the easy one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the harder one's 1 Timothy 2. And when I read it in a second, you'll understand why. It goes like this. I'm reading from the ESV, verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. Rather, over a man, sorry, that's in there. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. But she'll be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Super easy. Um, Huge. Really huge text. And it appears to say that no woman can ever teach it or have authority over a man. And if you're unsure about Paul's argument, he draws on the creation story to sort of bolster his position. He seems to suggest that women cannot teach men, all the Bible, because Eve, and hence all women, are more susceptible to deception. That seems to be the plain reading of the text. Now, this is how I used to read the text. And people often say, if you read it this way, it is the most plain way to read the text. And I'll be honest, it does appear that way. It really does. But I want to share four things that have helped me think about this text, not just in terms of unpacking it at face value, but thinking through how I might, with God's help, and good study, illuminate the text in a way that brings life. First, four things. First, I came to see that there's no such thing as a plain reading of the text. Just think about that for a second. A plain reading of the Bible is just a reading of the Bible that doesn't do the hard work of understanding the context behind a particular passage. All of us come to the Bible with a lens. I don't know if you know that. If we don't explore the context behind a passage, we're usually just reading our context into the passage, and here's the point I want to make. Our, our task is not to take the Bible at face value. Our task is to take the Bible seriously. Yeah. That's our task. And taking the Bible seriously means examining the context behind the passages that we engage. Second, I came to see that verse 12 is actually incredibly difficult to translate. And the confidence with which the ESV translates verse 12, I actually think can be questioned a bit. It says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. The second word, exercise authority, and for the Greek bus in the room, you'll know this. It's a unique word in the, in the whole of scriptures. I got one laugh. Thanks, Mike. Um, it's unique in the scriptures. There's no other word like it. The word for what it's worth is authentine, or depending on how you learn Greek, authentine. And it's unique in all the scriptures. It's not referenced once. Uh, it's rare in ancient Greek literature as well. And why does this matter? Well, it matters because... If it's really difficult to find sources to compare how they use that word with how this text uses that word, it just tempers the confidence with which we translate it so quickly. There's no, there's no sort of bucket of sources that we can go to and say, oh, they use it this way and they use it this way. There are some sources, 
but it's used quite differently in a number of them. And it changes drastically from the second century onwards, which is an interesting historical development that I don't have time to go into. Here's the point, though. People much smarter than me, and this is debated, I'll admit that, and so I'd encourage you, if this is a point that sticks for you, we'll talk about that. But people much smarter than me have concluded that the term is better translated usurp authority rather than exercise authority. And I intentionally quoted the ESV translation, which I think is wrong. Other translations, like the NIV, trust the NIV that brought me up, they get it right. It says this in verse 12 in the NIV. It says, I do not permit a woman to assume authority over a man. Now, this is important because it suggests that the problem is women usurping already distributed authority. So the question is, is there evidence that suggests that this is the case? Which brings me to the third thing that I learned. The context. I came to appreciate that the study done on the context behind the letter is actually incredibly valuable. See, Paul writes to the Ephesian churches, and what we know about Ephesus from the first century is that it was home to the cult of Artemis. There's a novel about the cult of Artemis, actually, that someone's done their PhD work on quite recently, and the novel is from the first century, and it gives us a window into Ephesus in the time of Paul. This is literally new scholarship. The cult of Artemis was a female cult only. If you're a guy, if you're a dude, you're not in it, you're out, can't be a priest, can't be a priestess, only women can. And what ends up happening is Christianity comes to town, women leave the cult of Artemis, they find themselves in house churches scattered throughout Ephesus and the Lycus Valley and all those places that surround Ephesus, and they walk in with the presumption that in the same way that they were able to so easily exercise leadership in the cult that they were a part of, they too can presume it in this new place. That's what they walk in with. Christianity comes to town and the temple starts losing its adherence. So they, the women, they wouldn't expected to play an authoritative role in Christian meetings, and here's the point, without first having undergone learning and discipleship like everyone else. And even worse, one of the heresies that was propagated because of the myth itself was that women were superior to men. And so in summary, Paul is most likely writing, and this is the most likely historical case, most likely writing to ex-cult women who are not simply trying to usurp authority, they're trying to demean and denigrate and demote men. That's the context. And finally, I came to see that Paul's use of the creation story, which is one of the big pillars of the argument against women in ministry, his use of the creation story, it's just not as straightforward as it seems. See, we assume that Paul is appealing to the creation story to extract this kind of universal principle. And the universal principle is that women are deceived more easily than men, and so women shouldn't teach. That's the universal principle that we want to try and extract from Paul's use of the creation story. The problem is that Paul uses the creation story, and particularly the story of Eve, a bit differently in other letters. Um, he uses the deception of Eve in 2 Corinthians actually to talk about, to give an encouragement to men and women there. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul writes this. He says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, I don't know if you see that there, but it's really fascinating. He's saying, in this reference to the whole church, men and women, he's saying, Eve is a model of someone who has been deceived. And I'm warning you, Corinthians, men and women, don't be like Eve. In other words, Paul goes to the creation story and to the person of Eve, not just to talk about women in a general way, but to talk particularly about the Corinthian context. It's a local application. Why does this matter? It matters because it actually 
gives us scope by which to say that Paul doesn't appear to extract a universal principle about women from the story of Eve. He appears to see her as a model of being deceived, and he uses that model to address different historical situations. They're very different things. Paul doesn't look at Eve and therefore conclude that all women are deceived. He doesn't do that. He looks at the story of Eve and says she's a model of someone who's been deceived, and he uses that story to encourage people not to be like Eve, both men and women in Corinth, and the Ephesian women in particular in Ephesus. Nijay Gupta, another New Testament scholar from the States, he put it like this. He says, The mentioning of Eve's deception by Paul is his way of humbling any arrogant Ephesian women who want to cause trouble for the men believing they were wiser. They're the major pillars of this argument against women in leadership, and they don't hold up. I've literally studied this for so long. I've wrestled with this. I've literally spent my life on different ends of the spectrum of this debate. And nothing has so illuminated the text for me and brought clarity to what Paul does in commending women and celebrating women and the way he talks about them in a strange way in this text, like this. So what's the point of all this? The point of all this is that this letter was not written to outline a church leadership hierarchy that exists across all times. It's not written like that. It was written to address problems in Ephesus. So one, the pull of biblical evidence. And two, a passage which I learned to read differently. I just want to be vulnerable for a moment. And as I do, I just love the, um, I can't remember their names, but the prayer team who might be ready to pray for people, just to be ready to come up when the music starts and be ready to pray for people. But just to be vulnerable for a minute, I have heard some of the worst stories about women being shoved down, pushed down, silenced and unrecognised in ministry. And the more I study these texts, and the more I think about women in ministry, and the more that I've spent time shoulder to shoulder in gospel ministry with great women, the more my heart is broken. Because we're not talking about ideas at arm's length. We're literally talking about the mission of God. We're not talking about equal opportunity, as great as that is. We're talking about the propelling of the gospel for the nations. And God wants to call and equip men and women, not based on X chromosomes or Y chromosomes, but based on the gifting of the Spirit and the future of the church to propel his people forward. And I've heard some terrible stories. Here's the point. The Scriptures, they invite us, they exhort us to be a church made up of men and women at all different echelons of church life. Disciples, leaders, preachers, teachers, church planters, scholars, thinkers, and the rest of it. To pursue this would be an act of obedience, an act of worship. I love what Beth Allison Barr, a historian from Baylor University in Texas, writes. She says this. She said, what if we remembered that women have always been leaders, teachers, and preachers, even in evangelical history? What if our seminaries used textbooks that included women? What if our Sunday school and Bible study curriculum correctly reflected Junior as an apostle, Priscilla as a co-worker, and women like Hildegard of Bingen as a preacher? What if we recognize women's leadership the same way that Paul did throughout his letters, even entrusting the letter to the Romans to the deacon Phoebe? What if we listened to women in our evangelical churches the same way Jesus listened to women? Women stand with a great cloud of witnesses. We always have. 
at the start of this sermon, I acknowledge that there's a whole host of ways that people could react to the possibility of this sermon. There's probably now a whole host of ways that you're reacting internally. And I just want to make space for each of it. I want to invite you to respond, but to do so, I'd actually just love everyone to stand. We'll sing in worship together. But I just want to articulate a number of ways that we might be feeling in the room tonight, this morning. Whoops, late night for me. You might be here and you're just excited. And you didn't understand a word I said and I talked too fast. And, but you're excited that this topic got addressed. This just could be a moment for you to worship. That this isn't just something we give lip service to, it's something we robustly seek to address and give reasons for. You might be here though, and you want to talk further. You've got questions. And I would just say, that's actually great. Our task is not to take the preacher at face value, even though this is something that our church holds and robustly stands by. Our task is to follow the scriptures where they lead. And if you're someone who's like me, and you want to be like the Bereans in Acts 17, you want to search the scriptures to know if what I said is true, then I just flagged that in a few weeks, hopefully, if I get my act together, there'll be a resource coming out that'll sort of take further what I've started to give a monologue on today. Some of us, though, we need to repent. We are backstage earlier and we were just talking about the ways that we've been complicit in not recognising women's voices and their leadership and their gifts. And if that's you, whether you're a man or a woman, and this for you is like the cherry on top of the argument that gets you over the line to celebrate this position, then you need to repent. Repent for the ways that, whether through intentionality or unintentionality, I'm, I've done this, made jokes, been demeaning, recognised and sought to hang out with our bros before our sisters, especially when we walk into church. Whatever ways that you've intentionally or unintentionally held women back, I just invite you to repent this afternoon, this morning. Did it again. Some of us need a dream. What would it look like to be a church that doesn't just permit, but celebrates, commissions, and gets excited about a future where God, through men and women, is taking the gospel to the locale that we find ourselves in. And lastly, some of you might be women and you need to be commissioned. That there's this nagging sense that you've grown with, that you've lived with, and that you might have tried to ignore. And this morning, God would want to commission you to explore those gifts, to look for opportunity to outwork those gifts. Why? For your joy, the good of the church, the blessing of the world, and the glory of God. And so if those who'd be prepared to pray for those that might want to come forward, I just want to invite you to come forward now. And if you'd love to receive prayer for any of those things, I just invite you this morning, don't hold back. Come forward and receive prayer. And as you contemplate that, and as we begin to sing, let me just finish in prayer. Father, thank you so much. Lord, that you're someone who calls not just men, but women to leadership. You're someone who's got such a big mission with such a big goal that requires such a task and work that you want all those who are called and equipped by your spirit to be on mission for Jesus. And so Father, I just pray, melt our hearts this morning. Refine our thinking this morning. And for those of us who need it, Father, commission us afresh by your spirit to be gospel ministers shoulder to shoulder for the glory of God.
it's in Jesus' name I pray.